going to um, continue on with our, with our series. We, as a church, are just moving right along through the New Testament. We're in 1 Corinthians at the moment, but we always break things into smaller series, and the, the reason's kind of twofold. One, it helps us to see the connections between last week and next week and this week. It helps us to see that these texts, even though we t- approach them one at a time, don't stand alone. They're not autonomous. It's a context issue. The second thing is it helps us to get at the underlying themes in the larger sections that make up a particular book of the Bible. So right now we're looking at 1 Corinthians 11, and we've entitled the series Tradition, What's Essential, Principle, and Optional in the Faith of Our Fathers. In this chapter, Paul looks at two different church practices. Um, One is so familiar, it's almost ubiquitous in all churches and all formats. The other is so foreign, uh, it's hard to understand. One is head coverings, this practice of women wearing head coverings in the early church, and the other is communion. Um, As we look at both of these things, though, not only do we learn about the practices themselves or the principles behind them, we also get a good feel for how it is we handle tradition, how it is that we go about moving from the world of the Bible and the pages of Scripture to the world we live in and our daily lives. And um, these two items provide a really good contrast as well as a really good comparison of how to go about these things. What makes this challenging uh, is that means that we have two goals this week. If you were here last week, then you already know the challenge. Um, But we have two goals, and one is to talk about, to better understand and come to some conclusions on the tradition that we call communion. And the other is to see the broader principles at play, not just in communion, but in how communion as a tradition intersects with the rest of our lives. So what I'd like to do is read our passage this morning, pray, and then look a little bit deeper. We're in 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to chapter 11. If you'd like to use a Bible and read along with us this morning, you'll find one in the back of the pew nearby. Um, 1 Corinthians is the New Testament, and there's an index right in the front of the Bible to help you find it. going to pick up in verse 17. We'll read all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 34. Let's read it together. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must or may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have a house to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, of cons- uh, guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Father, there is this running concern expressed in the law itself, expressed in the prophets, proclaimed by Jesus, reminded in Paul that we would maintain the outward facets of religion and deny its truth and reality and demonstrate our disconnectedness with it by our behavior. And so as we look um, at this act, this regular remembrance, I pray God that you would help us to, um, to see that it has to be at the very heart of the rest of our lives, that it has to interconnect and fittedly uh, intersect with everything we are and that when those things are out of tune, um, that, that it shows that something is deeply wrong. We thank you for your word and for your spirit that you've promised uh, who will guide us and teach us in truth. And we ask that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, um, there's a correlation, there's a relationship between the first half of this chapter and the second half, between this passage where Paul talks about head coverings and the passage where he talks about communion. You can see that in our opening verse today when he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He gave them a commendation for the way they were behaving with head coverings, and here he says, however, not so much. In fact, if you go back to the first Uh, the beginning of it, look at verse 2. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So that's where he starts. He says, you're to be commended for keeping the traditions. He deals with one issue and then he comes back in verse 17. He says, however, here's a place where I do not commend you even though you're, and he would definitely use air quotes here, keeping the traditions. Okay? Um, So, but the, the second thing that I want you to notice in the relationship between these two things is we see in the first one that he lays out biblical and theological reasons for his application, but he clearly handles that application in a custom-fit way for their church in their times. That's why he says, discern for yourself in your culture, in your nation, outside the church, isn't this what these things mean? On the other hand, when he deals with communion, they're keeping the exact same practice, but there are things on the fringe of that practice and things in their lives that invalidate the practice itself. And so on the one hand, we recognize that tradition needs to be maintained but adapted, 
And on the other hand, even if it's maintained, if it loses the heart and soul of it, then it's not maintained at all. Okay? And so these are the things that kind of weave this chapter together, and it's clearly part of the reason why he handles them back to back. He's addressing this issue. Now, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, notice he hasn't gotten to the practice, the tradition that, that they've received that he wants to address. He first lays a foundation. He gives us a context, and he says, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that there's divisions in the church. Now, actually, that's not something new in the letter. If you go back a few chapters in 1 Corinthians, the church has broken into factions that identify with particular well-known leaders in the church. And so some were identifying as followers of Paul and others of this um, eloquent speaker by the name of Apollos. Some identified with the Apostle Peter, and then there were the holier-than-thou folk who said, well, we're just about Jesus, right? But by, uh, by refusing to put on a jersey, they just became the skins team, and it was still a division in the church, okay? So these divisions are there. You also find, as you look... Um, Look throughout the passage, or look throughout the letter as we move into next week and following, that there was this division in terms of tiers of true spirituality. So there was the Christians, and then there were the real Christians. There was the A string, and there was the B string. There were the uh, the uh, you know upper cream of the church, and then there was everybody else. And so he's addressing this throughout the letter, but here. The, the divisions he's talking about are primarily socioeconomic. Okay, we'll see that in just a second. He's focusing in on an issue in a way, in an area he hasn't addressed yet. He has alluded to it earlier on when he reminds them uh, that not many honorable were called, not many powerful, not many rich, not many in high places, but God has chosen the weak to confound the strong and the foolish to put on display for the wise. Um, but what had happened here, whereas in the first half with the head coverings, they were throwing out a cultural manifestation that actually resonated with biblical themes. Here, they are, um, they are keeping parts of culture and adapting it into the church in a way that denies the practice. And so here, they've over-adapted to culture. Um, there's division. In the church. And so, although he said in the last chapter that the church is one body, and although he'll repeat this in chapter 12, here it was a body broken into many pieces on tiers of higher and lower, of better and stronger uh, versus weaker and lesser. Um, now, it's a little bit confusing because he responds to this. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Verse 19, he says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genu genuine among you may be recognized. And it's a weird statement in this context. You, you stop yourself and you go, wait, so is he feeling good about the divisions or not? Because here he says divisions are good because they help us see what's genuine. And there is a sense where that could be exactly what Paul means here. There's a sense where um, the New Testament apostles maintain that when heresy shows up in the church, it makes a clear and healthy division between true Christianity and not true Christianity, between actual Christians and not Christians, between sheep and wolves. Martin Luther, the great reformer, 
uh, resonated with this. And if you, uh, if you go back and you look at history, uh, the Catholic Church was so closely associated with the kings of particular nations that when this Protestant movement that stepped out of the Catholic Church and called the Catholic Church to account sprung up, they started being attacked and chased out of town by different rulers of different countries who were closely affiliated with the Catholic Church. The German rulers gave, and Luther was German, gave sanctuary to the Protestant Church, but then they were wondering how to treat Catholics and how to treat others. And so Luther writes in one of his books and he says, I do not think that kings should use the sword against heretics. He says, I believe if the truth is out there, it will become clear. And so give, it's a surprisingly early call for free speech. He says, give the heretics a voice, let them speak, and the truth will take care of itself. Um, I won't give you the illustration he used of the body and its relationship to heretics because it's, it's obscene as Luther generally is. I guess I can give you the smaller version. He says that heretics are the pus of the body. They come from the body, but they're not actually the body. Um, the other ones he uses, you can probably guess in there. Um, but his, his point is, it becomes clear over time. You just let the truth out in the words of Charles Spurgeon, and it defends itself. Okay? Um, but more likely, what's actually going on here is Paul is being a little bit bitingly sarcastic. Okay? He's saying, I believe it because what you want most is to identify yourself as in the, the proper group, in the A-list, in the top, you know, top seat. And so I believe there's divisions because your whole aspirations is to have fame in the church, have position in the church. And so he's here speaking as if he's one of them, sarcastically. You can hear it. I'll read it again. Verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying your entire purpose, divisions aren't just happening because of differences of opinion. They're happening because people want to draw a line and they always draw themselves on the inside of that line, right? So he recognizes this. Now he tells us what's actually happening. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Okay, so here, once again, he hasn't introduced the topic, but he lays it on the table and he says, you think you're coming together to enjoy the Lord's Supper. And he says, you're not. Okay, it's a pretty strong statement uh, that he makes here and he follows it up with a reason in verse 21. For in eating, each one goes on ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now, here's a place where our general practice is different than the early church and involves a couple of things. First, Paul says here, when you come together, when you assemble, okay, that doesn't mean when you gather at the church building on Sunday, okay, um, it probably does mean gather on Sunday, but we know from Acts chapter 2 that the church in Jerusalem gathered at the temple uh, weekly and in houses nightly. It was a regular and constant facet of the church that they came together, that they gathered, Related to that, uh, it's worth remembering that the, uh, the Last Supper, where we get the practice of communion, was in the context of a bigger meal. In that case, it was the Passover meal that the Jews had been celebrating all the way back to the days when they were delivered in Egypt. And Jesus is in participation of that, of that meal, and then he takes some of the imagery and he realigns it and says, that's not really as much about this as it is about me. 
So, the early church, for the most part, celebrated communion and took of the bread and took of the cup in the context of a bigger meal. You can uh, see reference to this meal, not just here, but in a couple of places in the New Testament where it refers to the church's love feasts, okay? And so there was this technical term that sprung up into this church to describe this practice of coming together to eat together as a church, and part of that meal was communion. Now, oftentimes when you hear about the love feast or when you hear about this passage, the comparison we give is a potluck. And that's, that's actually a really helpful idea because the church was coming together, but that's not what was going on in Corinth, okay? And see, here's, here's the thing that you have to understand. The Corinthian church is on the very cusp of this new thing called Christianity. And so the world that we live in is one that comes after Christianity and has been shaped by Christianity. But they came in as, um, and I hope you'll forgive me the phrase because I don't mean it in a derogatory sense, but raw pagans, right? And learned and adapted Christianity into who they were. So here's my point. When we look at Plutarch, who's a Greek historian, um, or the writings of some other people, even when we look at the teachings of Socrates, we discover that there was a normal practice of people eating together, right? We find that in every culture. But the way that it played out in Rome was not so much like a potluck as it was a picnic. And here's what I mean. That people would come together and they would bring their own food and then they would eat it together from their own baskets. Okay? And so what would happen then is there would be the rich eating richly and the poor eating poorly if they were even invited. In fact, there was, uh, even when there was a distribution of the food where the host, where the host, the host, was providing portions. He would provide the best portions to the ones who were seated in the positions of the honor, the ones who held status, okay? And so what's happening in the Corinthian church is they're doing their usual Roman thing and tapping into, adding on to that, this communion. So the meal looks exactly the same. Here's another thing that's helpful to understand. In the first century, the church didn't meet in church buildings. They sometimes rented public halls. We've talked about that. They often met in houses. But don't think of your studio apartment when you think house, okay? For the most part, they met in houses that were big enough to house much larger groups. And then the second thing you have to recognize is houses had a place to eat, and then they had a courtyard. And so even in big parties, just usual parties, the status high folks would sit at the table proper, and the rest of the crowd would be in the courtyard, okay? And so that's most likely another facet of how this meeting is laying out. And so here's the thing. The early church was incredibly metropolitan, incredibly diverse, and not just in the broad sense, but in the local sense, in the church in Corinth. And so there were officers in government sitting at the table with slaves, there were people in high positions and low. As we saw in the last chapter, there's women prophesying and doing activity in ministry, and there's men, and the church cuts directly across all of this um, social economic division, all of these places, uh, and, and so the crowd that sits at the table, some early historians postulate there were probably places where masters sat at the feet of their slaves on Sunday because their slave was the pastor, the elder, the overseer. 
Um, and so it was completely unique and hard to wrap your head around. But what happens in Corinth is that, that there's this reality theologically of who the church is and what Jesus has done, and then there's this practice that inherently denies it. And so once again, what he says is, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Here's what he's saying. He refers to this act of communion or this love feast here as the Lord's Supper. What does that make Jesus in that imagery? It makes him the host, right? It's the supper that he's laid. It's the table that he's laid. And what's unique about this meal from a Christian perspective is he's not just the host, he's also the offering. He takes the bread, as we'll see in just a second, he says, this is my body that was broken for you. And so he sets the table, and then he's set upon the table. And that's where we get our nourishment as Christians. He says, what you're offering is not the Lord's table. And if I can draw an analogy here, because there's this other host and this other agenda. And he's trying to co-host, but they're having two completely different parties. Okay. Now, when he says here, um, each one goes ahead with his own meal, it makes it sound like, and once again, this is possible, that some are eating before others have even arrived. Now, let me put that in context so you can understand why that's a problem. Recognize in, um, in Corinth, as well as the rest of the Roman Empire, you have the independently wealthy like we do today, and then you have the slaves and even the free laborers who are like small-time businessmen, okay? So you have the one who have workers that do their work and they reap the rewards, and then you have ones who are actually in the fields or working for someone else. The church most likely met at the end of the day but the rich who were hosting are starting it so early that the day laborers aren't off from work yet, right? Uh, they're not thinking about anyone's schedules but their own. Now, that being said, the word that's actually used here for waiting to eat does oftentimes in the original Greek across the board, not just in the Bible but otherwise, actually speak of sharing a meal, like in the potluck sense. And so he may be actually saying that not what's going on here is that they eat first, but they're devouring the food without others, okay? Either way, the principle is the same. He goes on and he says, one gets drunk and another is hungry. Most likely, uh, well, I can't say most likely. He may be saying one gets drunk because he means explicitly that, okay? That they've gathered together to have this meal and some people are hogging the, the good wine so much that they're plastered. And that would make sense because this is Corinth. And drunkenness was a major part of the worship practices of every other religion happening in Corinth, of which these were converts from. And so it may be another holdover, but more likely here, he's just making a contrast between two realities, those who have more than enough and those who have nothing. Okay? And so the contrast here is that there's those in the church who are starving and have very little in the presence of those who are overeating and have way too much. That's the contrast. This may even be exacerbated more by something we know about history from the history books, that just about this time, within the same decade, decade Corinth was going through a terrible famine. Okay, now we'll come back to this later, but that changes the issue, doesn't it? right? It's not just that they're poor, it's that they're literally starving. And here they are in the church coming together to celebrate what Jesus has done, and people are still starving. 
in that same church, and not just in the church as a whole, but in this particular act of communal worship. Okay? Now, um, look at verse 22. He says, What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So the first thing he says is, if it's just your meal and just your hosting, do it at home. Okay? And he's not just saying everybody should eat before they come. In fact, he's probably alluding to this economic reality again. He speaks directly to the rich and he says, you're the one with houses to eat and drink in. You know, the, the, even the house mentality and cooking in the ancient world for many of the poor wasn't actually something you did at home. You, you bought in the marketplace, you know, like we would convenient food to, convenience food today. And so he's probably alluding to the same reality here. But it's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. He says that their act despises the church of God and humiliates those who have nothing. Okay. And recognize here that this humiliation is not merely accidental. The purpose of the meals in this way in their culture was to reflect status right you eat with those who have less and you have more and that shows that you're the one with more in fact eating in the ancient world when you invited a guest over was almost always seen as a way to get ahead in life much like it is in some components of american life now and so jesus picks up on this idea and he says when you throw a dinner don't invite the well-off, okay? He says, but instead, the poor, the maimed, the blind, the ones who cannot repay. What is Jesus trying to communicate there? He's saying, instead of thinking about this meal as a way to get ahead in life, to make it so that they owe you something, to get them on your side, to maneuver your career forward, instead, go to those who have nothing to offer in that sense and do it as an act of love towards them. The Corinthian church falls in that first category. So he lays this all out, and he says simply, I'm not going to commend you for this. I'm not going to say, congratulations, you regularly gather to receive communion, to take it together. When you do it like this, it's not communion anymore. When you do it like this, you're not actually keeping the Lord's Supper. Now, what he does next is he reminds them of the tradition, but understand here that he's not doing this to tell them what they don't know. Okay? When he says in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, he's already told them, right? See that past tense, delivered to you. But this language is technical language. It speaks of oral tradition. Okay? What he's saying is what I'm about to tell you is the tradition as we hold it. If you've sat in a communion service where everybody partakes together before, you've probably heard this passage paraphrased, right? This is the tradition. It's traditional. Paul recognizes that part of his role as in planting this church was to pass on what he had received. We'll see this again in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about the gospel message. He'll use the same technical language, okay? But why is he putting it here? He's putting it here to make a contrast between the real meaning of this practice in its tradition and the, the setting that they're trying to put it in in their actual everyday life. So listen to the tradition. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said. Okay, and so he takes us back to a particular point in history on the night that Jesus was handed over, crucified, and died. 
on this last supper that he has with his disciples in the context of the festival of Passover. He takes us back to this point. If you're curious where Paul gets this tradition from, this is word for word the same version of this story that Luke gives us, which shouldn't be surprising because Luke tells us that he and Paul were companions, that they traveled together. Okay? Um, but he brings them back to that moment and he reminds them of what Jesus did. And the first thing we see is that he took the bread uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said. Now that phrase there, given thanks, is where we get the word Eucharist. Okay? Eucharist comes from the Latin that means thanksgiving. And so sometimes we refer to it based on this opening act of Jesus that he gives thanks. But what did he do? He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, verse 25, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, we do see something here that probably led to the early church doing this in the context of a meal. Did you notice it? It says that he took the bread at the beginning of the meal, gave thanks, and then after the meal, he took the cup. Okay? And if you go and you study the Passover dinner itself, as it's been observed and is still observed today, you can, you can discover a lot of uh, interesting imagery that Jesus is tapping into by when he does these things. Okay? But nonetheless, the way we should think about the Corinthian church is that they open this big love feast with thanksgiving and a reminder of the breaking of the bread and everybody partakes of the same loaf, they have the dinner and then they close it with the cup, okay? But what's important here is that Jesus calls us to do this in remembrance of him. But the word there does not mean the same thing like if you've lost someone and you lay a, a rose on their grave or if you um, honor a soldier who's fallen in battle, or when we remember, you know, the 9-11 attack by observing the 11th day of the ninth month and recognizing that. That's not what this word means. The way it's put, it's in the present tense, so it's do this to be remembering me, okay? And so the practice is not a memorial, it's a reminder, okay? The implication here that Jesus sets up is this is so important this is so central. This is the epicenter of Christian thought. And if you forget it, things are going to go sideways. And so by Paul reminding them of what's going on here, he's saying, you're not remembering what's, what Jesus did at all. You've completely forgotten what Jesus did. You're observing the practice, but you haven't gotten the point. So what is the point? When Jesus does this, we really get at the heart of Christianity. We get at the heart of the gospel. And the first thing is, he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body that was broken of you, eat. Okay? The recognition that Jesus is making here, he identifies himself of what we need for life, first and foremost. That's why it uses the image of bread. Okay? Bread is such a basic component, uh, it's such a natural element in food, that a lot of times we speak of food as bread. Right? Daily bread, when Jesus talks about that, he doesn't mean every day you should have your grains, he, he's just referring to food. So when Jesus takes this image, what he's saying is, life is available in me. Okay. And this is important. Because, because when we come before God, we come as recipients. Not as givers, but as receivers. 
unlike every other element of the world where we demonstrate our status, our worthiness, our, we prove that we are um, acceptable in these types of things. When Jesus says this, he says, life comes through another, not through what you deserved. We approach God's table not with offerings of our own that we lay before him, but we come to his table freely receiving of the food that he has laid before us. And Jesus says, I am that nourishment. I am where life is found. Okay. The second thing is, he says that this is my body that was broken for you. And so we see that it comes at personal cost. Jesus sees what's about to happen in the cross as a substitution. In fact, the wording here points to not just that his body was broken on our behalf, but that his body was broken in our place. Okay? That what's about to happen in this death is what we deserve, and he freely takes that punishment upon himself. Okay? Now, already we're getting a good idea of what's wrong Communion is a reminder of this tremendous act of self-giving, of self-sacrifice, of love on another's behalf. Instead, the church is using it in a way that's self-serving, self-promoting, is taking advantage of others for their own glory. Already we see that it doesn't fit. But I want you to notice the second part because what Jesus presents here when he points to the cross is not merely a way out from guilt. It's not merely forgiveness. That's clearly part. He says that life is only available because I'm taking the death that you deserve and freely offering you my life in its place. Okay? But he continues, he takes the cup, and notice what he says, verse 25, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so here he points to the cup, and I want you to notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, this cup is my blood, and that's important. He's, when he references a covenant here, he's recognizing something that the ancient world understood, which is that covenants were ratified in blood, okay? And so when he presents the cup here, this is the cost of the covenant, not the covenant itself. Not only that, but he uses this little tiny word here, new. And by doing that, he knits what he's doing in this upper room in Jerusalem, you know, in the first century, with some expectation that hundreds of years before, both Jeremiah and some of the other prophets present, that God was going to do something new. So Jeremiah 31, 31 speaks of the new covenant, that God has an old covenant with his people, that God's been doing something, but he's about to do something new. And so there's the old covenant given to Israel where the law is laid out and God says, I will dwell with you, but here's what it needs to look like. And if you cannot do this, there will be consequences. When Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, he says, I'm not going to give you a law of stone, but I'm going to write the law on your hearts. When you read in Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you and you will live righteously. You will live obediently. This gets us back to that concept of life. And so one way to view Christianity is that we are deserving of death and we are spared that death in Jesus Christ. But the problem that, that the Bible presents in humanity is not merely that we haven't measured up, it's that we cannot measure up. That there's something inherently wrong with us, that we are in a sense death incarnate, 
And so the things that we do, even though we don't want to do them, we can't stop doing. And the things that we want to do and know we should do and are called to do, something in us is bent, is broken, keeps us from that. And so when Jesus turns to the cup, he's saying, I'm not just going to spare you from death, I'm going to give you life, the ability to obey, the ability to live righteous, the ability to love, okay? The energy, the life source, it's a new covenant. God is doing something new. He's offering us not merely forgiveness, but his life so that we might live. In the words of Jesus, I came not for these reasons, but so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not to condemn the world, but through the world they might be saved. Okay, and so he lays out this practice. And it's, like I said, it's the heart of Christianity. If you're going to come to Christianity, if you're going to come to God, when Jesus draws a line and he says, no one comes to the Father but through me, when he says, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life, when he says these things, this is what it looks like to become a Christian. You have to recognize your need, that you are the starving, that you are the dying, that you are the condemned. You have to recognize that Jesus freely took that death, freely took that condemnation and that guilt, freely took your punishment upon his shoulders and offers you instead the life that he deserves, the life that he has. And then you also have to recognize that God in that can give you what you need to live a righteous life, a good life, an obedient life, a loving life in the spirit. That's why if you look at the preaching in the book of Acts, they never stop at forgiveness. They always say, receive the Spirit. Okay? They always get to the point where it's more than that, and Paul does the same thing here. Now, look at his application in verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What he says here is really extreme. He says, there's a way to observe communion that puts you on the wrong side of that night, on the side of the betrayer. When he says here you're guilty of the body and blood, that means you're not a recipient of the death, but the murderer. That means you don't stand with those who Jesus came to save, but those who put Jesus to death. And it's worth mentioning, isn't it, that part of what put Jesus on that cross in terms of when we look at the motives of man was power. It was prestige. They were jealous of Jesus' ministry. They were concerned about losing their place. They were the powerful, and he was the oppressed. All of those things are at play. And he says, basically, that you cannot receive the freedom of a slave being set free and be the oppressor. You cannot put yourself on the other side. And he says, when you behave like this in the church, you deny not just the practice itself, but the heart of Christianity. Now, I want to be really clear here. Paul is not talking about how we treat all other humanity. Although when you read the way the Bible talks about all other humanity, it takes it through the same filter of the cross. Here he's recognizing a boundary around the church, okay? Those who are inside, but he does clearly say here that the way we treat one another within the church is a direct manifestation of if the gospel has really sunk in. That's why... Um, John tells us first that God loved us and demonstrated that love in that he sent his son to die in our place. And then he says, if you see 
your brother who has a need and you don't take care of the need, how is the love of God in you? He doesn't just say you aren't being loving. He says you don't really have that loving act of the cross. It hasn't penetrated you. It's not inside you. James says the same thing. He says that, um, that it's not faith, it's not love, it's not true religion to say to someone, go, be warmed and be filled. God has done this tremendous thing for you. See that they are hungry and unclothed and leave it at that. Okay? But when, he t- when both of those authors talk about it, they do it in the context of brothers. They do it in the context of family. They do it in the context of the church on the inside. Doesn't mean that that doesn't spill over or bring requirements. Just, uh, just read J- uh, Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 10 on the Good Samaritan. It changes the way we view all people, but here the focus is on how we treat one another. Okay? Now, the next thing that needs to be said here that's super important is he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. If you read the old King James Bible, it says, if they eat or drink unworthily, okay? And oftentimes we can read that, and what we think is, okay, I need to make sure I'm deserving of communion. Here, in modern translations, it's helpful to get at what Paul is actually saying. He's saying there's a way to take communion that denies its reality. Already we've seen that you do not come to God's table as one who deserves it. And so if you get stuck in this place where you say, I can only partake of communion, I can only partake of what Jesus has done if I deserve it, so I better look inside, I better clean up before I come to God, then you've completely missed the gospel itself. However, you can do righteousness with your left hand and wickedness with your right That's what he means when he says in an unworthy manner. It's not if you can take it, it's the way that you take it, okay? It's not if you can take it, it's the context of your rest of your life and how that reflects on the practice itself. I think we all know the potential for things that are tradition to become merely traditions. And this is something the Bible cares about very greatly. The author, um, the prophet Isaiah picks up this and talking about fasting, shows this exact same sentiment in Isaiah 58. Listen to what he says. He says this. This is in Isaiah 58, verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose, a day day of a person to be humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see them naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? See, what he's saying here is not, hey, you've totally misunderstood fasting. Fasting is not about stopping eating. It's not about being humble. It's not about sackcloth and ashes. What he's saying is all of those things are meaningless if these other things are left undone. And so you cannot freely starve yourself as an act of righteousness when you do nothing about the starving around you who have no choice. Okay? And you can't freely 
take on the garments of a slave, sackcloth and ashes and mourning, and do nothing about the slaves around you. Okay, there's not just, uh, not just a new version of fasting that Isaiah is presenting. He's saying that the intention of fasting is incompatible with the life that Israel is living. Okay. Paul is doing the same thing here with communion. Even the word for us, communion, means to be in communion with. It means to have relationship with, fellowship with. Love feast implies the same thing. And they're trying to do the one thing the Bible will not allow you to do. To say communion is a vertical thing and it has nothing to do with other people. I have a very close relationship with God and I hate those people. It can't be done. In the church, we cannot love God, according to John, who we've never seen, and not love our brother who we see every day. It's an incompatible possibility. Let me give you a few reasons why and then we'll, we'll look at the rest of the passage. First, the cross is a great equalizer. When we come to the cross of Christ, all come in the same position as one of need, of one of desperate need. The rich come as poor. The hungry come as starving. Those who seem to have status come as no status at all. God is not impressed by your power or your, uh, your position or your prestige. And none of it will bring you into relationship with him because of wickedness, because of sin, because of the fact that you were a sinner, you have to come as a sinner. And so that means that you leave your prestige at the door, and what's incompatible here is that you pick it up again in the same service, in the same place. And the church is so good at this. Let me just illustrate a couple of ways, okay? First off, in early American history, when they read the passage about head coverings, they naturally translated that to hats. And so in traditional American churches, women wore hats in church and men did not, okay? But what happened? Pretty soon the hats became a place to demonstrate wealth and status, right? And so you had this kind of peacocks on display Sunday where when you came in, you demonstrated what you had while you were trying to be obedient to the text of the Bible. Choir robes. Choir robes initially were a way so that anyone could participate in the choir and hide how they were dressed underneath so everybody would be in the same dress. But what came with that was a sensibility in dress and now this is, this is the only way to do its right. And I Take the suit, for example. The suit became reverence for God and you show up in a t-shirt and now you're unacceptable, right? Whether you can afford a suit or not is irrelevant. We constantly are prone to forget. And communion, most importantly, is the one place where we recalibrate, where we remember. But, but the cross is a great equalizer. It says all are equally condemned and therefore all freely can come and receive. Okay? The second thing is it's a tremendous example. Right? How can you re be a recipient of this amazing self-sacrificing act and then not live a self-sacrificing life. Jesus says you cannot be forgiven and be unforgiving. It's incompatible. And then lastly, here we recognize that communion is communal. That if we are all recipients of the same act and as we all eat of the same bread, that is a bond that's closer than class. 
That's a bond that's closer than race. It's even closer than family because the blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of family, okay? And so uh, notice how he explains this in the following verses. He says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Remember, once again, this is not can I eat of it, it's write yourself, come correctly and then eat, right? He doesn't say let himself examine himself and not eat. The, the goal is, is to deal with what needs to be dealt with. In the words of Jesus, if you come to the altar to offer your gift and you remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift there, go be reconciled to your brother and then come and make your offering. How much more when we're coming not to offer to God but to receive of his great offering does that need to be true? And so we need to examine ourselves and just say, am I living in light of this? Am I, as he says in the next verse, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He says you have to do it discerning the body. Okay. Now there's one sense that this might mean, which is simply that you have to recognize that communion, communion as an act has meaning. And that meaning has to be in mind. That it can't just be a bit of bread and a little bit of juice. That it can't just be something that's rote or traditional. That, that it can't be merely ritual. But it has to actually mean something. That it should be a conscious meal, not an unconscious going through the motions. But more likely in the context, when he says here discerning the body, he's not talking about the body in the bread. He's talking about the body in the church. Right? That's where he's been this whole time. In fact, listen to what he says a chapter earlier in chapter 10, um, verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Okay? If Jesus' body was broken, not just for you, but for us, that when we, when we partake of that body, and when that's represented in communion, we are all recipients of it, and now have been joined into a single body that the Bible calls church okay and so he says you cannot come and not discern the body you cannot come and say and draw a line in the midst and sever the body of Christ and categorically raise up and lower you cannot utilize the same act and the same gathering of church for your own power and prestige for your own position This is why segregation in churches doesn't make any sense. Okay. The Bible's not happy with this idea that just says, well, we'll just do things apart. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, one of the earmarks of the early church was that there was no Greek or barbarian. There was no slave or no free. There was no male or female. That all of these things had been balanced. That true peace was available. Um, and that is reflected even in this act. I said earlier that it's not a memorial looking back. I missed this, but in verse 26, he says, when we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That means two things. It means that it's not just something Jesus did for us, but is doing for us. And this is the Jesus who the Bible declares is going to come back and bring justice that rolls down the hills like rivers that's going to bring about righteousness, that's going to rule with a rod of iron so that the unjust are finally put in their place. And then when he says here, we proclaim the Lord's death, that means that instead of a memorial, this is more like a pledge of allegiance. 
okay? When we take communion, it's not just a remembrance that God has done something for us. It's aligning ourselves with this God. It's declaring that we are his people. Notice as he finishes here in verse 30, he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now I want you to notice here, he's making a specific observation. He knows that there's been this strange plague going on in the Corinthian church and he connects the dots for them. Okay? This is not a threat about the magical aspect of communion and if you take it wrongly, then it's a death sentence. Okay? It's a recognition that there is a correlation between some of our sin and some actual manifestations like weakness, sickness, and death. Okay? We see it playing out in the book of Acts. This is why when James says, uh, if any of you are sick, let you confess your sins to one another and pray to be healed. It's why when Jesus heals the man in John chapter 9 who's blind, he heals him and then he says, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Not all weaknesses, sicknesses, and even deaths are caused by our behavior, but some are. And for the church, all the more so, because what does he say here? He says that God judges us, but listen to what he says next. Verse 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Here's what he's saying. He says that God brings about these things, not just as punishment, but as discipline. And not because he's done with us, but so that we don't keep going in the wrong direction. Okay? God brings about discipline in our life because he wants to correct us. Because he wants to get us back on the course. This is something the Bible says delineates the difference between somebody who's truly a Christian and not. That a father loves and therefore disciplines his children. And so the recognition here is that some in the Corinthian church are being so dangerous to their own life, to the testimony of who God really is, uh, that, that God just brings them home. That he just draws the line. I recognize that that's a scary thing, but it's also an undeniable principle that the New Testament presents. Okay? But remember here, he says, examine yourself. This does not give us justification to point the finger and like Job's comforters say, come on, Job. Nobody goes through all this hell without deserving it. That's a mistake. It's a misunderstanding. But when you are suffering, it's totally appropriate to go, is there something I'm doing? Is there something that's going on that I've known about, that I've been rebelliously headstrong? Is it surprising at all that when we trust in ourselves and are living from our own strength and suddenly we discover our weakness that we should go, oh yeah, I'm merely human. Oh yeah, I really need to rely on Jesus and I've been running my own race but I can't get that far on my own let's finish what he says here verse 33 so then my brothers when you come together to eat wait for one another like I said that word there for wait may mean to wait on it may mean literally like to serve in other words when they come share he continues on he says if any is hungry let him eat at home so that when you come together it will not be for judgment about the other things, I will give directions when I come. What he says basically isn't, you should feed the hungry in your church. But he's recognizing that the epicenter is wrong. He doesn't even deal with the suburbs of the issue. He just says, when you come together, make sure you're doing it rightly. Make sure you're reflecting the heart of what's going on. Let, let me make it personal and practical here because we don't have um, very clear uh, socioeconomical divides manifest in when we take communion, okay? 
the, the fact that uh, we now have a gluten-free offering is not a manifestation of the fact that we've been alienating those who have celiac disease. Okay, that's not the point. Um, but, but this idea can be extended, and here's the recognition, that there cannot be division in the church. Big groups of people in factions or between particular people and then come and partake of the same act of forgiveness and come and partake of the same definitive act. If the epicenter of what Jesus has done has shaken your life, it shakes it across the way. Those things have to be dealt with. And to come against it is a dangerous position, not just because, or not because communion is a magical act and God is just watching and waiting, but because the reality that it represents has gone sideways in your life. And so it's merely an external act. So I want to do something different as we take communion today. Generally, we just come up and we take of it our own, and I think that's fine. I don't think anything's really lost in the image. Today, it's going to be a little bit messy, but I'd like you to take the elements and sit down with them, and then I want to partake of it together. Because although we do receive of it as individuals, when we partake of the same loaf, it's a recognition that we're the same body. And if you're not a Christian today, don't take communion. Don't receive the elements. There's nothing special or magical in them. Receive Christ that they point to. Come and recognize that God has freely laid a table and said, what you're looking for in life, the satisfaction that you need, I have freely provided for. Come and buy, as Isaiah says, with no money. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy first for us to forget the heart of traditions. There's a danger in familiarity that makes us lose sight of and no longer even experience the reality that this outward act reflects. And then there's a danger to, uh, to twist the tradition uh, in ways that it serves ourselves and points to a different passion, points to a different definitive moment says that my, my social standing, my class, my power, my position, my self-righteousness, that's what defines me. But when we partake of communion, it's a recognition that we are not so much lovers as we are the beloved. That we are not so much righteous as the, those who have been justified. That we are not so much powerful but weak and yet secure. Because we are secure in the in Christ, who is our life, who is our fortress. So I ask God that we would come, that we would discern the body, that we would come and we would examine ourselves, that we would come and we would recognize where this single act that we do fits into the life of this community and into our daily life throughout the week. And I thank you, Lord, that even there, you don't demand that we get cleaned up or fixed before we come. You just demand that we be honest, that we lay those things before you as another thing Christ died for, that we ask for your forgiveness and your empowerment so that we can be ambassadors of righteousness and reconciliation, be um, peacemakers, and therefore the children of God. God, we just thank you for this great act. We thank you for the bread that represents the body that was broken. We thank you for the cup and the sealing of the new covenant that gives us what we need to live a life for you. We thank you.
you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we respond, we'll sing this morning, like I said, over the next song or two, come up, grab the elements of communion, and then right before we close, we'll all take of it together. So please hold on to it. Thank you.